This is Mouth Media Network. Amplify and connect. This episode is presented by Threadstone Advisors, a leading independent advisory and investment firm specializing in the beauty and personal care, apparel, specialty retail, and direct consumer sectors. Hello, I'm Galena Osger. I'm an international accelerator consultant, startup advisor, and venture scout with Arabisi. To me, what matters is community. Bigger. Everything today seems bigger. The investments, the deals, and without question, the exits. And unfortunately, the meltdowns. I'm Kelly Kovac, founder of Beauty Matter. M&A activity in the beauty space has been on fire for several years, leaving the pool of mature indie brands of scale depleted. This has created a rush by investors to make bets on the next crop of young beauty brands. Venture capital, incubators, and accelerators are ingrained in the startup ecosystem. It's hard to stand out as a new player, and who you raise money from and the programs you're accepted into are strategic decisions that provide a competitive edge. Venture capital insider Galena Osgur is a New York-based accelerator consultant, startup advisor, and venture scout with Area VC, a seed fund focused on ventures that improve society or the environment. She's an accelerator trailblazer, an innovator in emerging markets, and an advocate for entrepreneurs and their ideas. Galena's superpower as a venture capitalist might just be her empathy. Galena, you've spent the bulk of your career in the VC space, specifically focused on accelerators. What is it about sort of the concept of accelerators that compels you so much? Yeah, um, I think accelerator businesses are really interesting because um, in such a short span of time, um, let's say we've only had 15 years to develop a brand new concept get it ingrained with the community, and now make it an essential part of any ecosystem that is worth talking about. It's smart people in rooms together working on exciting ideas. So let's talk a little bit about sort of the purpose and process of accelerators, Mm -hmm. because I think based on industry sort of specifics or verticals, they sometimes take very different incarnations. And I think that off, and it's often, it's become a word that gets thrown around a lot. Yeah. Dirty word. <laughs> bad um, word. Ba- yeah, a bad, bad word. word in a little sort of <laughs> nebulous. Yes. Um, so I'd love to sort of dig into that with you just a little bit uh, and talk about, you know, what is the real purpose of an accelerator and what does the process look like? for both an entrepreneur and sort of the the VC community that backs it. Um, so my first question is, um, as with anything, accelerators, they're not all created equally, obviously. What should the role of an accelerator be in a founder's startup path? 
Okay, yeah. I think let's let's uh, roll back a little bit mm-hmm. and think about um, the very beginning of the accelerator okay. industry. Um, so the first accelerators are, um, as a lot of people in the industry know, is Y Combinator, YC, started by Paul Graham. It's Techstars. It's 500 startups here in New York. It's um, ERA, Techstars New York, um, many, many others. Um, and, um, originally the concept of an accelerator was let's have, um, a beginning date and a start date. It's going to be cohort based. There's definitely going to be an investment involved in exchange for equity in the company. Um, and there's going to be a demo day that used to be the model. Um, it was mostly tech or, uh, something around tech. But things have been changing and evolving. You know, 15 years is like dog years in the startup industry. I, I know. It's crazy. In historical terms, 15 years is nothing. It's a millisecond. For startups, it's so much. Um, and so we went from, you know, something that is catering specifically to tech tech companies, technology companies, to a wide array of both industries, verticals, types of companies here nationally and internationally. When you ask me what role does an accelerator play um, in a company's journey, well, it really depends what type of company, what type of accelerator. And you're right. We do throw that word around so much. Um, I remember walking into a bookstore, and the bookstore had a book that said, what's an accelerator? Or what's the difference between an accelerator and an incubator? And everybody really wonders. To me, as a purist, as somebody who was classically trained in the accelerator industry, that's still a cohort-based program. And what that program does or promises, if it's good, is it gives you um, access to, well, financing, but not just that. Um, you usually can't run your business on just the investment from an accelerator. It gives you access to an amazing network mentors, advisors, other investors, and it gives you the promise of community. And if you're good at building community, it's maybe your community for life. It's friends for life. It's really one part, you know, I think it it also becomes sort of a marketing cue for future rounds. And I think also, like many things, it's sort of what you make of it. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, You know, I think A lot of startups these days, especially with the proliferation of programs, say, what do I need for my team and for my company? Oh, I need some free space so I can get to my next round of financing. I should join an accelerator. And I go, oh, my God, please don't take me there again. If you're giving away equity (laughs) to get free space for three, four months... I will be questioning your entire judgment about how you're running this business. Well, I think that also, you know, it kind of feeds into sort of off topic and mm-hmm. sort of a larger topic of this sort of short term mentality that we mm-hmm. live in. Not only, you know, startups always have to think short term to a certain extent because it's a little bit of hand to mouth um, yeah. until you get things going. Um, but the the fact that someone would look at an at an accelerator in such a transactional way is sort of the antithesis yeah. of, you know, why they exist. Yeah, absolutely. I think your accelerator experience does absolutely depend on what you make of it. It also depends on the expectations you have of it, but also on 
how you're reading the expectations of the program. And you know what? I feel like founders don't spend enough time on research. They don't spend enough time on the website of the program. They don't look at the requirements. They say, come what may, I need the space, I need the financing, let me go. Somebody had a great experience, so therefore I will have amazing experience. But they're not all created equal, and one program is going to be amazing for one company because they're in the right spot. They have maybe a product, MVP, they're ready for financing. Another company is a little bit too early, and that may completely change their experience with the same program. So how does an entrepreneur Mm -hmm. um, or sort of an organization – what should they be considering um, when sort of vetting accelerator programs? And what does the, the process look like for acceptance? Okay. I think the process is generally pretty straightforward for most programs. Um, you submit an application. Applications are available online. Um, the form and the questionnaire actually gives you give you a lot of insight into what is required and what the company – the program values in the applicant. Um, What you need to be considering is how long has this program been around? I do think that um, companies that or programs that have demonstrated some longevity um, also have some experience under their belt. Um, So don't disregard that neck beard. Don't disregard the uh, gray hair. You know, it's, it's important to have that experience on the team. I would personally look for um, people who have been operators in startups before. Um, The very first accelerator that um, I was very lucky to join as a program manager uh, was ERA, which still exists today, one of the most successful programs out there in New York. Um, And it was founded by um, two serial entrepreneurs and um, an investor. And I thought that was a great mix of talent that also gave founders a lot of security and confidence in the quality of programming that they were being served. It's interesting that that um, one of the things that you would look for is sort of an uh, an accelerator that has founders or that mm-hmm. ha- because I think it's very different. I think uh, VCs bring a set of knowledge to sort of the conversation or the equation. Yeah. But being an operator and having done it before, yeah. um, you know, there's there's an experience that can be shared yeah. that is so valuable yeah. that the information can only be obtained by having sort of, done, you know, gone through the process yourself. Absolutely. I mean, now that we have so many models and so interesting versions of accelerators that are no longer even called accelerators, they're called clubs, or called platforms, or called um, communities, uh, campuses, um, they're run by a variety of people, and they may not be entrepreneurs necessarily anymore. Um, I do think that operational experience on the team is very valuable. First of all, because if you're saying this, you're saying, I know that it's damn hard to build a startup. I've been there. I know what you need. Come join me. 
Well, there's also an empathy that goes along Absolutely. with that. That unless you've done it, you you will not have that sort of sort of empathetic or even foresight into what that entrepreneur might need yeah. that they don't even realize yet. M- much more on perhaps sort of the psychological, not the financial. Absolutely, empathy is such a big word uh, to me, especially on the community building side. You need to understand what these people are going through. And they are building and growing something that is so important to them. A lot of them are risking relationships, um, you know, putting everything on the line. Empathy absolutely comes first. So, you know, I think making the decision to participate in an accelerator program, it's a time commitment, both as sort of in research preparation, and then once you're accepted to make the most of it, requires a commitment of time. Um, you know, what What do you look for or what do um, accelerators look for in sort of the ideal candidate that someone could think about um, if they're in the process of um, pitching or filling out that uh, that questionnaire? Yeah, um, I think the timing needs to be right. Um, when you're a little bit early for an accelerator program, and let's say you're really working hard on your product, um, you're, you're not there yet, and you know that the next three to four months you're going to be spending heads down working on some product features, an accelerator program tra- in a traditional sense is probably not the right time for you to join. Maybe in six months' time for another cohort, it might be great. So timing is of essence um, because, again, if we're talking about a traditional accelerator program, there's a beginning and there's an end, and it ends so fast. Mm-hmm. Um, so three to four months are usually spent on, um, let's say, some aspects of business building like um, sales, marketing, yes, product, absolutely, but customer acquisition, testing your assumptions. It's very intense. And so what the teams at accelerators are looking for is that you come in with a very strong commitment to be there for three to four months. Um, most accelerators will want you on site and not just you and not just your co-founders, but most of your core team. And they will want you to actively engage because if you're there, just say, I'm going to attend a couple of sessions, a couple of workshops, uh, but I'm not going to participate in anything else. You're essentially missing out on a very core offering. There's so much stuff happening in accelerator every single day. There's mentor meetings, there's sessions, there's one-on-ones, there's pitch practice ahead of demo day, um, there's investor meetings, and there's that very valuable time that you can actually spend with a management management team of the accelerator because if they're doing something right, their door is always open, and that's your opportunity to ask a question. You won't have the same opportunity to engage as much once that program is over. So what they're expecting is commitment, absolutely. Second, um, it's great right now um, because there's so many accelerators and because funding rounds and how much we're raising and um, what is expected has changed a little bit over the, t- over the years. Um, it's always good to have raised a little bit of capital. It's okay to raise your what we call pre-seed round. Um, maybe it's your uncle that gave you, uh, you know, a couple grand. It's nice to show the team that um, – you are able to raise, that you have gone out and made your first steps, whether you were super successful 
or not so successful, time will tell and that can course correct. But the most important thing is that you need to show them that some action has been taken. Um, three, I think, again, commitment from your team this time. Um, the expectation is you need to be full-time on this. You can't have a, You can't have this as a side gig. If you have something else going on, it's likely not for you. And then it needs to fit the thesis of the accelerator, right? Unless it's a generalist accelerator that will take every company from fintech to beauty, mm-hmm. um, then you're fine. But if you're talking to a travel incubator, to a fintech incubator, to any sort of very specific hardware, obviously you need to know where you're applying. Um, it's not very different from a college application or essentially just qualifying your leads. Right. You know, um, a big part of sort of the incubator process is obviously demo day and pitching. Mm-hmm. Um, what What are the elements of a pitch in your mind that help entrepreneurs sort of stand out in the crowd. And that is sort of in a demo day or even just in an investor meeting. Mm-hmm. You know, I've seen, I've been part of sort of the receiving end of those, both sort of the business plans, the executive summaries. And, you know, I'm really shocked at sort of sometimes the lack of preparation um, in terms of the audience. Like, it's obvious, like, this is the pitch deck, and they send it to everybody. Oh, which accelerator was that? <laughs> well, not, none, none of the not, ones not, I work I'm with. not necessarily speaking about an accelerator. <laughs> I'm, I'm speaking about the, the startup sort of looking to raise capital or enter programs. Yeah, understood. I think that um, any company should be able to um, nail their elevator pitch, and that takes a long time to craft that. I know a lot of founders who are very passionate about what they're doing, yet they take so long to get to the meat of the problem. So your elevator pitch, your first couple sentences are crucial. And you need to really practice, write them down, practice in front of the mirror, make sure that it sounds good, and then bother every single person around you for feedback. Um, You need to nail down your one-minute pitch, your two-minute pitch. The Biggest thing that I hear back from um, founders, the pushback is, well, my business is so complex. It's impossible to talk about it in two minutes. It's possible to talk about any business in two minutes. And if the team, if the accelerator team is doing something right and they have great pitch coaches and mentors, then the two minutes and even one minute are possible. Um, Yes, you won't tell every single little detail about your company, but the point of any demo day actually is not to tell everything about your company. The point is to get people interested, get them to come to talk to you after, because if you told them everything, there's no reason. There's nothing left to talk about. Nothing left to talk about. I think that's a really important distinction that I think often gets gets lost. Mm-hmm. I think uh, I think so many entrepreneurs. There's so much pressure being an entrepreneur, in sort of I think that the ecosystem we live in right now that they feel like they have this one moment and they need to make the most of it and sort of approach it as a zero sum game instead of sort of the beginning of a process. Yeah, well, I think there's a there's also a misconception about what demo days bring. 
I always went when I talk to founders, I tell them, I know you have great expectations about a demo day and it's a very important day, but it's just one day and it's only the beginning of a process called fundraising, which is grueling, tiring, exhausting. Um, and, um, all you need to do, yes, you absolutely need to have a great pitch. You need to be able to interest the audience. But if your expectation is that you're going to be, um, getting a check right on demo day, you have another thing coming. Um, it's possible. Of course there, there are cases when founders get, um, checks on demo day, but it's not an and average. That's, and that's what we always hear about, right? Oh, make it rain <laughs> just on demo day. Um, and you know what? I, I know that. I know that when when we talk about accelerators, we say, well, you just mentioned that, you know, a demo day is a very important day or the most important day for an accelerator. I, I actually don't think that. I think that accelerator demo days, while they're very important, the preparation for it is a lot more valuable to the founder because once you've nailed your pitch, you can repurpose it for later on. Not Maybe not your demo day deck, because the presentation at Demo Day usually has a lot of graphics. It has a lot of images. It doesn't have the meat of the problem. It's not like an investor deck that you can send to an investor. Um, but the preparation really gets you to a point where you can be a little bit more confident. About sort of the saying. foundation. It's the foundation. And then Demo Day is more like, you know, it's a party. You, you are there. You're celebrating your graduation. Get people interested. But know that it's the first day the rest of your life. <laughs> so this is a good uh, segue into, um, I guess, the day after the incubator, which usually begins fundraising. Mm -hmm. I think media coverage, and we are complicit in this because we do a lot of M&A coverage, um, not only M&A coverage, but um, investment, has made has made it seem like fundraising is easy. Capital is, you know, is there. There's like a money tree. You just need to go pick it off. There is? I know. I'm still looking for it. Um, but shockingly, you know, it's made to seem like – and it also is is almost been framed as the way you launch a startup. Where there are other ways to fund a startup, not mm -hmm. not necessarily sort of um, fundraising. In the you can take loans, you can fund it yourself, but those those things don't really get talked about um, today anyway. You know, it's all about reaching unicorn status and valuations, um, and this idea that you know, you know, if you if you start up a business and disrupt. That there's a you know a billion dollar payday in your future, um, One you know. Can hope. What what is the re? I mean, I think we're in a time with sort of the implosion of WeWork that a little bit of reality has set in. Um, but from your perspective, you know, what is the reality of fundraising? Well, the reality of fundraising is yes, there is a lot of money out there, um, but there's a lot of money that founders look at and they don't they don't think about it strategically. Um, they don't make a plan for themselves or for their company. Um, and they think that, okay, the day that they get that check in the door, a uh, check in the mail and the bank account, you know, they get cash out. It's the day that they celebrate, they pop the champagne. 
Um, and it's really the day when you have a lot more responsibilities, you have a lot more people to answer to now, and you now have to absolutely accelerate your business. You have to go faster and faster and faster and plan for your next raise. And that's your job as a CEO oftentimes is, mm-hmm. um, you know, juggle those responsibilities. So the reality is, yes, there is a lot of money, a lot more money or a lot more access points to capital now than there were 15 years ago. I mean, after all, accelerators were started and one of the marketing messages when they were getting started was get access to capital. Mm-hmm learn how to get to the right investors, learn how to talk to investors. Now that capital comes from a variety of sources, you can say that there's a proliferation of firms and money and all that, but you still need to do the work. You still need to plan for how much you're raising, who you're raising it from, and is that the right decision to raise that much money from that specific investor? What does that... what? What does that investor give you outside of the check? You know, can you talk a little bit about needing to have a strategy when you mm-hmm. go into fundraising? Um, because in the in the beauty industry, I've seen so many founders that sort of raise money kind of out of necessity mm-hmm. rather than doing it as part of a strategy and in the end lose control of their business. Um end up walking away, the the company may have had a sort of a big exit, mm-hmm. but their share of it was inconsequential. And that yeah. really goes back to sort of there wasn't a strategy in place when the capital was was being raised. Yeah. I don't think that that's just the problem that beauty companies experience. I think that certain problems in the startup industry recur um, from um, vertical to vertical. Um, however, I do want to say that strategizing does involve understanding um, how much it takes to make your product, what your product really costs, what the sales cycles are, how much your marketing costs, so on and so forth, and bake that into your plan. And when you're fundraising, that should be a core thing about your plan, your financials, your projections. And yes, at super early stages, you know, investors want to see your financial projections. They understand that you will course correct over time. Not everyone's projections are going to be correct, right? We're we're making a lot of assumptions here. But um, the strategy does need to be around your understanding of the core elements and triggers of the business. And the second thing, when you're raising money and you're going after, let's say, dumb money, right? Uh, which is the opposite of smart money, Um, is when you take money from people who want to give you cash, um, but they're not necessarily experienced, or maybe they they don't know how your business works. They expect returns faster in beauty businesses. That usually is the case, Um, that there's a struggle and that there's pushback. And beauty businesses, you know, going into tech, it hasn't been that long. And a lot of VC firms look at beauty businesses through the lens of tech businesses, which is such a mistake. Until the past two years, there have not been beauty unicorns. That was something that did not exist. Exactly. And so I think a lot of investors are very careful about looking at beauty businesses because they try to evaluate, they work with their associates and you know, say, but go, go and 
look at the market, see how the market's doing, what are the valuations like? And a lot of them are just not bullish enough on the market. However, those that do invest, you really need to look for strategic. It's either somebody who understands beauty. The quickest th thing to do is, um, so some, some great advice from, um, I think the, late, the last person that did this was Jenny Fielding, uh, managing director of Techstars, who came up with this entire slide share about how to strategize about your fundraise. And it's true for whether you're a beauty business or insurance business, it doesn't matter. You build a list, you build a spreadsheet of all of your potential target investment firms. All the information is online on Crunchbase, on the angel list, on the websites of those investors. Um, you list um, the fund size, the average check, the type of businesses that they look at. You need to look at the portfolio, which is always listed. Are there any competitors on that list? If there are, it's unlikely that that firm would go after you. Um, if they're close, but not close enough. Maybe it's an opportunity because they've already looked at that category. Um, and then you need to start qualifying your leads. It's just like a sales process. Um, if you go to any conference venue <laughs> that has done any entrepreneurship conferences or any other podcast studio, um, not that any podcast podcast studio exists outside of this, um, <laughs> but uh, you know, the, if the walls could only talk... Um, the advice from investors resoundingly is always strategize, write it down, go <laughs> line by line and figure out, do I know someone who knows this person? What's the best way to reach out to them? And by the way, it's not on LinkedIn or cold email, and it's not through another investor. It's usually through a company that is part of the portfolio or through somebody who knows that investor well enough to make an introduction that is an informed introduction. Otherwise, just goes into the trash. It's, it's a matter of timing and time and understanding how the industry works. So, you know, once, once you get through the process of getting some yeses mm. to initial meetings, um, the pitch becomes crucial. I've had the pleasure of sitting through one of your advisory meetings. Um, and, you know, I think one of the things that I think a lot of entrepreneurs don't realize is that your pitch evolves over time based on where you are in sort of the life cycle of your business and what 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 series or round mm -hmm. um, of money you're looking for because then that also sort of equates to a, a, a specific set of investors. Yeah. Um, can you talk a little bit about, you know, either what are the biggest mistakes you've seen with pitches or, you know, you know, what are, what are, what are the top three things you think people need to consider about pitches? Um, and then this whole idea of, of how it needs to evolve. Yeah, I think at the very early stages, let's say pre-seed to seed, um, the conversation still revolves around the founding team, the quality of the founding team, why them, what's the market opportunity, how big is the market, but why them? Well, it's interesting that you say founding team and not mm -hmm. founder. Oh, you caught me. Yes. <laughs> 
it's my favorite topic. <laughs> Solo founder versus versus um, a bigger team. Um, you know, since since we started with accelerators, um, a lot of accelerators will not tell you this but they prefer not to uh, consider applications from solo founders. There's a reason for that. The programs, yes, are absolutely intense. You have to be there. What if you get sick and you're out for a week? You're, you're missing out on, a core, um, on core program offerings. But even beyond that, when investors talk to solo founders, I think they, they just, they look, here's where it is. Investors look to de-risk a situation. Of and so if they're talking to a solo founder, they just have that many questions for that person. Why just you? Um, how are you going to be um, accelerating this business? What are the next steps? Um, and there's that line of questioning that you don't always want to go down. Um, and you're just giving them more, more reasons to say no or to consider someone else who may have a co-founder. Not that, you know, I think every single company needs a co-founder. But it just happens that it's a numbers game and investors talk to so many companies in the same realm. And if they get to choose and if they don't feel confident with just that one founder, it's possible that that no stems from that reason. Well, also, I mean, no business is built by one person alone. True. Um, And I think that, you know, founders play a key role um, but sometimes they're as good as the team they put together. Absolutely. But also what I tell solo founders is go and prove them wrong. You know, investors operate on a lot of assumptions. Right. They look at patterns, pattern recognition, and, uh, you know, all of that stuff that happens. How do trends come? Like, how do right. trend reports come out, right? Oh, you know, Mercury in sixth house, you know, moon <laughs> and that. Okay, the, this is going to be famous in the next. Um, so... Go and prove them wrong. If you think you can build this business alone, hell yes. Go do it. Go and do it. And by the way, one investor tells you no, 20 investors tell you no. It only takes one yes. And and sometimes no's are no, not right now because of some of the things you've you've spoken about. Absolutely. So so going back to (laughs) some of the some of the mistakes, right? Or some of the things to look out for when you're when you're going out to raise. So at an early stage. Um, it's absolutely you, your personality, how you're presenting. Do you know every aspect of the business? Um, some of the mistakes using too many buzzwords in your pitch. That's so common. Oh, we're building this artificial intelligence engine platform for, and it also has this and it's VR. You just go and can you explain this to me? Like I'm a five-year-old. Right. Like Michael Scott from the office, <laughs> you know, maybe explain it to me like I'm a three-year-old because I'm still not getting it. Um, so so you really need to condense that pitch into something that's understandable. Also, don't assume that investors know everything about your business, unless this investor is very specifically focused on, let's say, software and hardware, and they come with that expertise and they can dive deep with you. Mm-hmm. Don't make any assumption. Ask leading questions. Qualify your audience. Otherwise, what you're risking to do is you're pitching investors and they sit through the meeting and they nod because no one wants to look stupid and no one wants to feel stupid. And then you walk out and they go, 
not now, thank you, maybe let's talk a little bit later as they try to get more market. Like, this is maybe interesting, but I'm not excited. You know, investors feel through a lot of gut reactions Mm -hmm. after they look at some actual data. So don't give them a reason to tell you no. Right. Um, Be prepared. Such Such a common thing. It doesn't matter which round you're raising for. So if it's a seed to pre-seed, focus on your team, focus on the idea, focus on your key assumptions about the market, give them something tangible. Maybe you have an MVP, maybe you have a wait, a wait list of however many customers out there who really want to try your product. Give them as much information as possible and talk about your team in a way where they understand that you are the ones to do it. And that does happen through pre-seed and seed rounds as you're talking to accelerators, as you're talking through with venture investors who still don't have enough data to really say, well, this is going to be huge. But they look at you and they say, hmm, I like this founder. I think they can they can cook something up. And they're coachable, but you know, they still have their strong opinion. I like that. Whatever it is that they like. And it's very mm-hmm. hard to feel through what what we as the investment community like sometimes. But then as you move to, you know, your further rounds, a series A and onwards, it's about data and numbers. There's only Your personality that long. only gets you so far. <laughs> yes. I mean, there are certain people who are so charismatic they can coast through right. <laughs> some of the stuff, but um I, I think it becomes less relevant. It becomes all about what the market is telling you. If the market is telling you that this isn't working, what else are you doing? Are you pivoting? If you're pivoting, how hard are you pivoting? Do you have do you still have the right team for that pivot? How much money you have left in bank? All that stuff will be playing into the greed versus fear mm-hmm. right. <laughs> mentality of the investment community. It's very interesting. It's very hard. I mean fundraising, you said it's grueling. Yeah. It's time consuming. Yes. Um, and I do think for um, sort of solo founders, um, when you're raising money, you're raising money. There's very little time to do anything else. Mm-hmm. Yes. And by the way, I tell founders all the time, put a timeline on your fundraise. Don't always be fundraising all year long. If you are unable to close, there's something about the assumptions in your business that may need another look. Maybe there's something in the market that's happening that's not giving investors enough confidence. Maybe it's something about your product. Maybe it's the pricing. Maybe it's the marketing. Maybe it's the fact that they know that you've been shopping around for investment for a long time. Well, because like any other industry, it's a small industry. Yes. People talk. Oh, my God. (laughs) Um, And I think sometimes um, when you're from the outside, you don't you don't realize that. Yeah. Although you learn very quickly. You do learn very well. Yes, you absolutely do learn very quickly. And yes, the industry is very small. Investors talk all the time. And um, I've been privy to conversations when investors said, yeah, I've seen this company before. I've looked at them. It feels like they've talked to everybody. So the signal is. What's wrong? Right. Why are my buddies not investing in this? Because Why are my there friends is a little bit of a herd mentality. A little bit? Well, a lot of a herd. I, I mean, I was trying to be kind. <laughs> Thank you for your kindness. I think, 
No, listen, there, there, there's some, there are a lot of investors who go out for outliers for founders that you typically wouldn't, uh, you know, the, the traditional VC maybe wouldn't look at. And I think that's great. There's enough money out there for a, a diversified approach to investment thesis. And thank God for programs and investors who say, listen, how about we don't start another seed fund that invests in the same stuff? How about we let other founders, other industries a chance? Well, you know, talking about the herd mentality, Mm -hmm. you know, I I think it's an important topic. And I think a really good perhaps example of it is what we've seen with D2C brands. Okay. So there was so much money being thrown at D2C concepts. And this is sort of my perspective as an outsider, not sort of a financial person on the other on the other side. I come from a traditional background, so I'm like, this is fantastic, but you know, intuitively I was like it limits the scale. I don't care about sort of the internet. It still limits the potential reach if you disqualify traditional brick and mortar retail, even though there was the apocalypse. Um, so, you know, there was so much money being being sort of funneled into these D2C concepts that entrepreneurs were like, well, that's my strategy. I'm just going to bypass this whole hard distribution piece and I'm going to sell direct to consumer as if somehow that was a shortcut and easier. So there was so much money going into it. And I, I don't know, call it two years. Maybe it was longer than that. But at some point there – so the cost of acquisition online became so expensive mm-hmm. that they weren't as attractive financially. So you had you had businesses that raised all this money and perhaps were starting to get traction. But now investors are looking at completely different data points. Um, and so I think there is – I guess my question is how do you kind of future-proof – your your business and the need for capital against sort of the herd mentality when you know all of a sudden maybe in the middle of your your the fundraising for your next round the herd has gone a different way you know i wouldn't place all the blame on the investors because of course. investors really it, it's it's in the investment community's mentality and foundation to look for reports or um you know look for trends that's the basis and the foundation of of that business. For founders, on the other hand, following a trend alone, well, that's that's one of the pitfalls that don't do it. Don't run after everyone. And you need to understand your business and the dynamics. So I I, I think this is perhaps talking about like understanding your business. Yes. And not necessarily just giving investors what you think they want to hear. Maybe that's sort of the crux of it. That is the crux of it. And listen, there's a there's a lot of extremely talented investors, um, very insightful, who have seen so much business and so many deals, and they are qualified to give you advice around, you know what, I think this might be going that way, and I wish that you would focus on this or that or the other. Um, but there's lots of people in this industry just giving advice. Um, who like the sound of their voice, who like to be listened to, and there's no basis or foundation for that advice to be insightful or helpful to founders. So I think, you know, what is great about 
good accelerator programs is that because you're given so much feedback in the first months of you being in there, you learn to filter through the stuff that matters and the stuff that doesn't. You have to have the confidence as a founder yeah. to believe not only in your business, but in yourself. Yeah. No investor knows your business better than you. Um, but it's like, you know, take an investor's advice. Damned if you don't. Damned if you do. Sort of. Sort of, sort of like that. So I think as long as you have a spine and you're able to show that, that investor that this is what you think is right. I heard you, back but. That up. <laughs> I heard you and I respect you. What a great question. <laughs> Which is always a great way to end a conversation with someone. It's an amazing question. And here are the reasons why I'm doing this that way or that way. And I think that will gain you more respect than um, going after someone else's advice who is really not qualified to give it to I you. mean, it can lead to sort of this ping-ponging yeah. and, you know, constant evolution of, you know – the, some core tenants in your business. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, what, what are you going to do if that doesn't pan out? You're going to go back to the investor and say, say but you well, told, you told me. me. <laughs> exactly. How old are you? And they have very selective memories. <laughs> they do. <laughs> um, so let's switch topics here. Um, so you're an accelerator consultant, a startup advisor, yeah. and a venture scout. So you are super – It is. Yeah. Um, you're, and you do it globally. So I think you have a, a, a sort of a unique perspective. Um, but so you're pretty tapped into the VC world. Um, what are some of the trends that you think we're going to see sort of, I don't know, call it the next 12, 18 months? And what do you think are some of the, the, the shifts um, from kind of where we were in the last 12 months? I'll tell you where there's a lot of chatter in my world where I'm seeing um, some interest and where I'm personally interested um, is the future of work. Um, I think we're all talking about remote office. We're talking about satellite offices. What's a, you know, innate hour day like, and why does it have to be that way? Um, so I'm, I think we're going to see a lot of interesting future of work businesses coming up in the next five to 10 years. Personally, as a scout with AeroVC, I'm very focused on everything, um, future of food, future of education, future of work, carbon-free, um, any ventures that uh, somehow modify societal behaviors and help the environment as well. So I think that um, meat grown in a lab, um, stuff that's going to be the foundation of, you know, essentially how are we going to be feeding the ever-growing population? Um, are we going to be helping the farms? Are we going to be growing meat in the lab? That's a very interesting subject for me. Uh, another topic is the unbundling of LinkedIn, um, the new social. Uh, you're seeing, you know, some some interesting trends with people saying, okay, well, things have happened to Craigslist. Things have happened to all these travel sites. Like how could we potentially do the same thing with LinkedIn? Could we create interesting um, vertical solutions? You know, LinkedIn is not a solution for everybody. It's not cookie cutter, maybe for white collar, but what about other jobs? So, and especially now that job creation and jobs are such a hot topic and doesn't go away, there's going to be stuff happening and is already happening. So I think those are some of the trends for me personally. Um, 
And on the tech side, there's, of course, a lot of artificial intelligence and also cybersecurity because those attacks aren't going anywhere. Um, so I think there's going to be a lot of interesting tech coming out on that side. Space technology, another one. But I feel like, you know, I went to a NASA iTech competition in Chicago in November. I was fascinated with some of the interesting technology that could be applied both in space and here on Earth uh, for the for the space missions. And I was definitely the dumbest person in the room there because everybody was pitching was, <laughs> I mean, a PhD uh, and and absolutely fascinating and so smart. Um, and I love that. And I think that companies like Hypergiant um, are doing some really cool stuff. But I also wonder what technology keeps us grounded here on Earth mm-hmm. <laughs> because I don't think we're done with this planet yeah, yet. I don't, I don't think so. Yes, we are on fire. Yes, we are being <laughs> flooded and it's horrible. And so many things are going on. They're darkening our day, day in and day out. But I think there's a lot of stuff that we can do here that could change our experience as humans. And maybe it's not companies that help us like store our sneakers on the way to work. Maybe that's not the type of company. Not that I'm discouraging people to build companies like that, but I think that as we're moving into, I think, a new age where technology could really make a difference for us, what is it we're doing that is super disruptive to our society? Not just disruptive to a very small community somewhere in in the nomad area of Mm -hmm. New York City. Right. So right. I really hope that we get to build something like that, more of that. So this is a good uh, time to sort of take a break. I want to use it as a jumping off point to talk about sort of the self-care of entrepreneurs and the female adjective applied to everything. And now here's our trend minute. Brought to you by big thinkers that aren't afraid to make predictions. I'm Navad Batriwala from the Beauty Conversation, and I'm here to talk about trends. Smart airplanes. Get ready, guys, to see personalized lighting, temperature, and even fragrance preferences on flights within the next couple of years. As we become accustomed to allowing companies to use our data to improve services, we're going to start seeing smart airlines tracking our preferences by recording our in-flight behaviours and then selling them back to us as personalization. So, for example, we'll have seat sensors that can measure our sleep habits, fragrance preferences, or even body temperature to adjust airflow, which will inevitably see us being offered certain tailored options pitched as an exclusive upgrade. Now, while some might see this as a good thing, others are becoming more wary of data misuse in the wake of scandals like Cambridge Analytica. So we think the challenge here will be for airlines to balance convenience with trust in the data capture process. That's your Trend Minute. I'm Navaz Batliwala. And for more of our insights, go to The Beauty Conversation on Instagram and sign up to our newsletter. Redstone Advisors has assisted clients from startups to global brands through different economic cycles. Their perspective is broad, their knowledge is comprehensive, and the values-oriented culture of senior partners is the core of their success. A leading independent advisory and investment firm specializing in the beauty and personal care, apparel, specialty retail, and direct-to-consumer sectors. Threadstone's industry knowledge 
preparation, and hard work allows them to generate ideas to help companies achieve their strategic and financial goals and objectives, approaching each engagement in the same mindset as a venture capitalist. They understand that businesses are looking for more than just money. Through a unique partnership approach, Threadstone develops a deep understanding for the strengths and opportunities of their clients and tailors a go-to-market strategy that delivers both the financial and strategic resources that their clients need. To learn more, visit threadstonelp.com. So sort of off the the last question of trends that you're seeing, I think there's at least what I've been seeing is there's also kind of a a shift from a pure focus on on returns for investors yeah um to businesses really playing a part in solving problems where governments are where our governments are just falling short. So the rise of B corporations, um, which really sort of, it opens up a whole can of worms from an invest from a, an investor standpoint and capital raise. But I think, you know, I want to use it as a jumping off point to talk about perhaps some a bit more esoteric conversations or talking points about entrepreneurs and trends um, that we're seeing. And I think two of them that I know are important to you in your um, consulting work is sort of the self-care of entrepreneurs. I think we've seen some sort of crash and burn scenarios play out in the past year that were not pretty and were very public and tied to egos, but a lot of it tied to burnout. And I think the the second thing I'd like to talk about, which is sort of hot topic, effed up conversation around sort of the the female adjective applied to everything. Yeah, yeah, okay. Two totally different Two conversations. Two totally different conversations, <laughs> but so important. Um, yeah, you know the the self care element of everything that happens in the startup industry um, is now being explored a lot more carefully. Um, when you're, when you're helping entrepreneurs, be it, be, be it as a consultant or an accelerator manager, you see that firsthand, how people burn out. It's not pretty. And, um, for the longest time, I don't think people could talk about it. It was a matter of shame. Um, I personally experienced burn, burnout several times. I know how it feels. You just lose all motivation. Um, but at least when I would go home, I'd vent to someone. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd vent to friends. And unfortunately, what happens with founders is that it's a very lonely journey. If you're going to go back to your spouse and vent about how you're burnt out, think about the first piece of advice you're going to get. Well, so quit. Go back to your consulting job. Go back to your finance job. Wouldn't wouldn't they be happy? Or maybe they would be super concerned for you. You know, whatever whatever the reaction is, founders don't always feel confident about sharing that information. And also, it's a culture of, you know, we're sitting in a room full of founders and everyone's sharing about how they're doing. And um, the overwhelming, um, uh, the phrase that overwhelms me and, uh, irritates me 
experience every single time is we're crushing it. We're crushing it. Right. It's always like 68 and sunny. Yes. We're crushing it. And I'm, I'm thinking, what, what are you taking? Like, what, what's, what, <laughs> what kind of person can always be, okay, I'm, I'm of Russian origin. I'm, I, I look unhappy all the time. But there's a happy medium there, you know? And I think that founders, yes, are absolutely pressured to show a certain level of, um, you know, contentment and the stuff in their life where they can be genuine. So um, what I'm seeing now, there are founder retreats. Founders go on meditations. There's a, some take ayahuasca, really go far, mm-hmm. you know, yes. all the way far to Peru and do these ceremonies. So I think there's, there's a big exploration of self now in the startup community where people are finally... And there's also, um, I think, not a... It's okay to sort of disconnect for a period of time. Yeah. Where before it was kind of this, you know, got to be on 24-7 and that expectation trickles down to your team. So if a founder is not in a good headspace, yeah, the trickle-down theory applies. You're absolutely right. But they also need to form a culture where their employees are able to do the same. Absolutely. For their families, for themselves. You know, and that's why I think, again, we can go back to the future work and what that looks like is giving your it's it to me, butt and seat at 9 a.m. is a very old concept. But, you know, I'm uh, I'm I'm contrarian to the to the thoughts and opinions of my baby boomer parents. They're like, <laughs> butt and seat absolutely at 9 a.m. In fact, 8.55, 9 a.m., you're already late. You're already late. <laughs> you're already late. Um, and I just come from a different generation. I think that those things, as, as the generations are, you know, turning and changing, then that thing will change as well. But the founder burnout, I mean, yes, you're absolutely right, it trickles down. The fish rots from the head. And the reason why it's great to have a co-founder is because if you're not feeling your best, there's somebody who you can relate to, you can talk to, and hopefully they understand and give you an opportunity for that new headspace that you're looking for. Whether you're talking to your investors, whether you're talking to the accelerator programs, you need to look for, you know, an opportunity for that headspace. If you're promising something to investors, you still need to plug in things for self-care. If you're a runner and running makes you happy, but you can no longer do it 6 a.m., I know founders who wake up an hour early and do that. And interestingly enough, they share that on their first startup, they didn't do that. They burnt out. On their second startup, they learned the lesson. If running is not your thing, maybe meditation is, maybe yoga is. Maybe cooking yourself breakfast at the same time every single day keeps you grounded. Whatever it is, do it. For me also, getting a coach now and almost like a coach slash therapist these days. It's interesting. I just read in the Financial Times um, this huge uptick in – in professional – it's like having sort of a therapist for your career. Yeah, 100%. If you can afford one, get one. 
Um, there are celebrity coaches now, like Jerry Colonna has written an entire book, and um, I listen to him all the time, and I read the book. I think it's it's groundbreaking, and founders swear by him. But he's not the only coach that's available out there. Of course, um, there's different price tiers and you know availability, and I think that founders could benefit so tremendously from talking to somebody who understands the industry, but also listens. And maybe instead of giving advice... It's just a sounding board. It's a sounding board. Maybe at the most they will have a Socratic conversation with mm-hmm. you, but that puts you in a position of, you know, feeling supported mm-hmm. as opposed to being the bad guy or the bad person, right? Like, oh, I'm, you know, well, I didn't do well today, so I guess I'm going to take it out on my team, or I guess I'm not going to perform today or tomorrow, and I might have to take a vacation forced four months in, right? That will disrupt the entire thing. So getting coaches, talking to somebody and having outlets to um, an opinion that could potentially be a different opinion from your family members, from your friends, super crucial. And by the way, we're in New York. We're very lucky. In San Francisco, everyone's just talking about the barrier. Everyone's talking about tech, right? Mm -hmm. Everybody is involved in one way or another. This is why New York is so great. Uh, and I'm going to sing it praises, is because you can be sitting at a table with somebody who's a literary agent, um, a ballet dancer, a singer, a lawyer, um, an insurance specialist, and all of these people, and you're going to be a tech person. And that diversity alone gives you an opportunity for a different headspace. Right. Remove yourself from a situation that is becoming stagnant. Well, and I think it's also, it's so important, not only as founders, but sort of, I think, to instill it in your team, get out from behind devices and go sort of, go think, go take a walk. Yeah. Um, You know, I think we spend so much time connected. There isn't this opportunity to be bored anymore. Yeah. Boredom has a function, which is sort of this this ability to disconnect and just kind of let your mind wander. Um, it's a different form of meditation. I really think about that because I know when I'm bored or, you know, doing something mundane, you'll have these brilliant ideas that pop into your head. But if you don't create that space or allow for that space, yeah. um, you're just sort of, you know, killing it and grinding it out. Grinding it out. Yeah, for sure. But you know what? I think I think um, what it comes down to is not just being aware that um, the right headspace is important, but it's having the right management skills. And this is something that comes into question a little bit later in the startup phases, you know, when we're talking about those, uh, you know, garbage on fire situation, dumpster fire mm-hmm. situations, right? So, uh, that usually happens when management somehow fails to recognize that those are humans working with them, um, and the culture is not set up for that. It's too late. Do you also think that perhaps it has something to do with how fast? And I guess I'm I'm speaking. Tech companies have always scaled faster than yeah. sort of CPG companies, but I I think that what I've witnessed is. You know, CPG companies are scaling so fast that founders don't really have the time to grow into their role. Yes. They go from sort of founder to CEO from zero to 60. Mm-hmm. And they're not – founders are not necessarily 
ready to be CEOs. Yes, um, but also I, I don't want there to be a mistake um, in any of your audience listening and thinking, well, startups are just made for, you know, somebody who's never had a management job. Of course. Right, yep. and jumped yep, yep. into like the founder role and then CEO role. Um, there's actually a, quite a, you know, there's different ages in uh, founding teams and especially in New York I'm founding. You know, there's a lot of people who are in their 30s and 40s who have had jobs before, supposedly should have the management experience or understanding that you need to create a certain culture, but it is the pressure of the industry and it is the pressure on yourself to perf to perform because it's your baby, you're growing it, you're nurturing it, and you think you're doing something better than anything else that's happened before. And you don't have time for anything else and you think that your priorities and your company's priorities are now your team's personal priorities and that's where you might be losing everybody. Mm -hmm. So you need to be really careful about that. That's why, yes, you're absolutely right. Being prepared to be a CEO, that means being prepared not to be best friend to everybody necessarily, making tough decisions. And what founders often find out is that they're great founders, but they're not great CEOs or CMOs or COOs or whatever. And that is why somewhere down the life cycle of the company, the board, and usually there is a board, sometimes make a decision um, for to replace the CEO. And they remain as a board member, as an advisor, but they're no longer the person actually running the company or setting the tone for the management of the company. And that happens organically most of the times because, yes, you're right, it's just really short time historically. Um, so let's pivot to let, – let's call it sort of the girl boss moment that we live in, which I – that makes me cringe. But I think it's one of the things that when I met you, I was like, yes, we're kindred spirits. <laughs> so the the, the uh, women in tech, women in VC conversation, um, that is a very interesting one. I've been in this industry – Well, I think we're even just women in business. Women in business. Regardless of – yeah, um, I mean, I've I've been working in tech for eight years and have been in business for for longer. Um, and you know, I'm not a native speaker. I'm not originally from here, um, and so I've experienced different cultures that influence the way that my business ethic has developed. And I've also seen different approaches to um, how women are treated and what type of responsibility they're given. Now that I'm an international consultant, um, I do get to go back a lot also to um, my native Belarus or to Russia, to a lot of Eastern European countries. And I get glimpses of that. And I'm like, oh, I remember what that was like. I must come off really confident and harsh to them in comparison to, you know, what they're, <laughs> You're New Yorker what they're used now. to. I'm a New Yorker too. I want everything now. And, you know, I'm right. Um, but the thing is that no matter where you are in your career, where you're coming from, I feel like women are often stuck in this rut of, you know, okay, I'm I'm somewhere at, at some point in my career. It feels like I've done everything right. I played by the rules. I've been confident. I've been told to lean in. And did I lean in? I leaned in a lot. And then somebody tells you to lean out because you're coming off too strong uh, you're bossy, you're picky, you're too big for your britches, whatever the comment is. 
And I think that happens a lot for women in VC as well. And also women founders, right? We still qualify that as a woman founder, women in VC. There's a a reason why that happens. Um, I'm a member of a women in VC group, which is absolutely brilliant and gives so much opportunity to women in my industry to get exposure to the right jobs, to um, the right deals, to great networking. I'm a part of a lot of newsletters, lists uh, that promote women and business and technology. And the reason why they exist is because women need that leg up. They need that sisterhood and support, um, which maybe hasn't existed in co-ed environments just because we're not always understood. Let's put it that way. I'll be, I'll be generous. <laughs> we're not always understood. We're just very mysterious. And so, you know, my wish for 2020 is that hopefully all of these groups together as they're working on different aspects of business um, get to advance us so drastically and dramatically that we finally are able to drop that qualifier. A woman in VC is a VC. A woman in business is a person in business. Um, A woman founder is a founder. And that we get to focus on the equitable parts of that business, of that aspect of business, instead of focusing on gender um, and all those qualifiers that are distracting, right? So that's the hope. hope, My wish is the same. Yeah. So just in wrapping up, um, I mean, we touched on a lot of different topics. I think most of them could be sort of their own podcasts. Um, So thanks for sort of... going down this very uh, random path with me. (laughs) But if there was just one piece of information that you could give to a founder that would fundamentally change their business, what would it be? That's a really tough question. You're putting me on the spot. Um, (laughs) That's the point. (laughs) That is the point, right? Um, Can I interview you instead? Can we just do that next time? Um, I think... Persevere is the big, um, big word here. I really want people to understand that no matter the advice that they're receiving or how terrible, dreadful a situation may be fundraising-wise or competition-wise, if you feel you're building something game-changing, keep doing it. You know, I think it's – I think you're so right. Um, you know, I think we we tend to focus on um, those really sort of polished up shiny stories and forget that, you know, those starting in garage moments um, that exist every day. Yeah, absolutely. I think the reason why I'm still in this industry and it is exhausting to be in this industry because, you know, we talked about empathy and I consider myself an empath. Um, so I eat up a lot of those emotions, sometimes quite literally, (laughs) 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 that other people share with me. I really care about their journey. I really care about their success, whether I'm an advisor or managing an accelerator or I'm an EIR for a program just for once. Um, I really want them to succeed because they have the courage that maybe a lot of us don't have to start something. And the worst thing that you can do is discourage someone by saying, well, you can't do that. Or, well, I've seen this done before and I don't think that's right. Or, are you the right person to do that? That's not helpful. Um, so, So my approach is always, you know what you're doing. You know this is exciting. If you're seeing some blocks, it doesn't mean stop. 
Right. It means maybe jump over that hurdle. Find another way. Find someone to support you. If you don't have supporters, uh, great advisors, mentors, find them. Find a way. Because ultimately, if not for entrepreneurs or building something new, where would we be? You know, I'd probably still be on dial-up internet somewhere. <laughs> you know, that terrible sound. And my mom is like, that's eating up all the money. That's a phone bill. <laughs> have to innovate. And those people are building something exciting. So I'm in the business of supporting these people. And uh, my only hope is that they keep going. Galena, thank you so much for joining us today. For Galena, it's a matter of community, particularly the startup community. Building and nurturing the startup ecosystem so that it makes a difference in the founder's journey is her passion. Founders are a hard-driving, passionate group, but the path can be a lonely one and burnout is rampant. She is the ultimate cheerleader, coach, and advisor, recognizing the unique needs of founders and creating programs to support them. Media coverage created the illusion that fundraising and exits are easy. Billion-dollar exits are still the exception, not the rule, at least not in beauty. Fundraising is time-consuming, and being a founder is hard. And the reality of underrepresented founders in the VC ecosystem is they have to be 10 times better with 10 times bigger market and 10 times further along with their product than everyone else. That's not to say it can't or it won't change. It will. But for now, we need VC insiders like Galena to play a crucial role in making change happen and being the advocate for founders. One day, founders will just be founders and investors will just be investors. No qualifier necessary. So in the end, it's a matter of community. I'm Kelly Kovac. See you next time. Hello, I'm Galena Osgar. To me, what matters is community, paying it forward, supporting entrepreneurs with every bit of resource that you can so that they can advance their business and be the best version of themselves. It's a Matter Of is a production of Beauty Matter LLC, copyright 2020. You can find more content and insights on beautymatter.com and follow us on social media at Beauty Matter Official. This is Mouth Media Network. Amplify and connect. Connect.